Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Erica. Hi. Happy special episode day. Yes, I cannot wait to discuss this book. There are so many parts of it that I want to talk about. I found this book randomly too, so I'm excited it turned out to be something that we could talk about on the pod. Today we're doing a special one-off episode of Saeed Masood's book, The Bad Muslim Discount. So uh, spoilers will be included for what happens in this book, um, so just keep that in mind. If you haven't read it yet, maybe you want to pick it up, maybe you just want to hear the discussion. Um, we have a very special guest who is going to talk about um, what it's like to grow up as a Muslim in America, how she relates to Pakistani identity, and most importantly, what it's like to be best friends with me, um, <laughs> which I think is like just the most important thing. Do we talk about that? I don't know. No. <laughs> Should we talk about that? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> All right. Annoying, so, I'm sure is the answer. <laughs> no. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, quick summary of this book. So this book follows two families. The first one is Anwar and his family who flee Pakistan and make a life in San Francisco. Anwar is a lawyer um, and the least religiously devout of his siblings, which leads to some strained relationships with some of his family members and communities and um, breaking up with his first girlfriend and love, Zuha. Meanwhile, our other family is Safwa and her father, who are in Iraq. They escape Iraq after he's captured and tortured during the war um, and also make their way to San Francisco. Safwa changes her name to Aza and fatefully meets Anvar. As the stories begin to unravel, they cope with the meaning of life, religion, family, and duty, and it ends in an epic plan to rescue Aza from her abusive relationships and allow her to finally be free. Okay, so overall, I feel like I always ask you first, so it's like tradition now. Overall, okay. what were your thoughts and feels? What's the overall rating of this book? I think out of five, I'm going to give it 2.5. Oh, God. I didn't yeah. expect you hated it more than the other book that you hated, just so you know. <laughs> What's the other book that like, I hated? I feel like you Addie gave... LaRue? What did I give that? Yeah, like a two, like a three. Ooh. Um, well... Let me say I appreciate and enjoyed that I read a book with almost no white characters at all. It was like just very predominantly focused on Muslim community and two different Muslim experiences, which really could not be more different. I feel like this should have been two separate books. I did not love jumping between Anvar's like funny life college experience and Safwa being extremely traumatized and abused. I felt like it was just like very jarring to jump back and forth between their different stories. And I thought that a lot of it were tropes about Muslim people that I think perpetuate some not so great stereotypes, I guess. So that's why I didn't love it. I felt like in the end, I was very frustrated with Anvar. I didn't feel like his story balanced Safwa's story at all. And I just didn't love how related this all was still to terrorism, to violence, to abusive relationships. I thought it was just like a little achy in that way. 
I read this book a while ago. Um, so it's, it's always hard to do to like record a pod after it's been a while since you read it. But I do think I remember liking this book a lot. I'm going to give it a 3.5 or a four. I think the, the stories are not, I think it can definitely be jarring to go between Safwa's experience, which is awful. And Anbar, who's also struggling. But I think the thing is, for me, those stories do exist at the same time and they're not necessarily meant to balance each other, but to be both experiences that can and are happening at the same time. Um, all over the world, like there are, you know, obviously stories of of suffering that are almost too great to read about. And then there are people who feel and are struggling with something that can seem much more um, people are struggling with things that can seem much more trivial in the face of such great suffering. But I think that that is, you know, one of those things where just because you're not suffering as greatly as somebody else doesn't mean that you're not still struggling. Um, so I'm not sure that the stories were meant to balance each other, but were meant to show how people of different experiences and different levels of suffering and, and of life still will interact and intertwine with each other and how, you know, uncomfortable, but also, kind of eye-opening that can be. I also think it's hard because, yeah, there are stereotypical parts of it and there are parts that portray bad um, stereotypes of Muslims or of terrorism, et cetera. Um, but I think that it's almost easier to not want to read about those because we don't want to perpetuate them, but that's also such a realistic part of what people of the Muslim experience are still living with today. Um, and I think it's hard when you write a book about a group of people, when you write a book about trans people or about, you know, Muslim people to be like, well, you're not showing all experiences, but we do that with, you know, with white people all the time and we're not showing or talking about all experiences, if that makes sense. So I don't know. I think I kind of, not that I just meant to like contradict, <laughs> like argue about all points of that, but I think it's hard um, because this is a Muslim person writing a book about something that or a story that they felt needed to be told. Um, but I think it's hard because when there aren't a lot of mainstream Muslim writers, you're kind of expected to write about all Muslims and to include stories about all different kinds. And people are like, well, what about devout Muslims who are extremely religious, who are also really interesting you know, well-educated people who are like participating in communities in different ways. What about their story? And those are all important, but maybe they're not his to tell. I don't know. That was a really long reason for a 3.5 rating, but like, here we are. I just, I, th okay, let me say this. I liked, I liked Anvar's story, story better, even though I think Anvar as a main character is very frustrating. I almost wish that Saeed would have put these as two separate sections of the book rather than flashing between their two lives because like you were saying it makes everything Anvar is dealing with feel much more trivial of course for all of us the little things that we get frustrated with in our day-to-day -day lives are the things that we struggle with you know like Anvar writes this like newsletter newspaper article that then be, seems like such a, such a catastrophe and it's like of course it's not a catastrophe if you compare it to what uh, Safwa is going through and yet we all have things like that in our lives I just feel like flashing back and forth was very frustrating and then what Safwa was dealing with with her dad and with the third man who was like essentially forcing her into this non-consensual relationship I just I don't know I don't love the portrayal of the like violent tortured 
Muslim men who are abusive towards women. But I hear what you're saying that if this does happen, I just feel like it's stereotypical to be like, oh, every male religious Muslim man takes it out on women. I think this is what kind of Tori and Detransition Baby was trying to say. Like, I'm not trying to say that all trans women who have a really hard time in transition will eventually detransition, or I'm not saying that all trans women will have these kind of sexual experiences that are like, you know, definitely somewhat based in trauma because of they've had this, you know, they can't find this simple, joyful way. Like, she's not trying to speak about all trans women, and I think it is supposed to be talking about this girl's story, not saying that all Muslims take out all men who are like tortured and religious will take it out on women. But that is probably a story that has happened, which is also to say like when you're reading something like good neighbors and this person who was abused isn't, and we write about her then abusing her child. It isn't that all people who are abused are then going to abuse their child. That's not the story, right? What could be hard about reading books like this is if you don't have any if you're a person who doesn't, which is not you, but if you're somebody who doesn't ever read about Muslim characters and then you read about it, you know, I think it could, you could kind of extrapolate that. This is how I felt about Detransition Baby, um, which was kind of harder for me because you were like, I want everyone to read it. I want everyone, you know, I love it. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I want people to read it, but I don't want like, you know, people in my life who maybe have never met a trans person to read this and think, okay, well, they all have, you know, crazy sex lives like that. And they all, you know, have all these things that happen to them. And I was like, I don't want them to read that and then think that that's the community. And so it made me a lot more nervous about recommending the book, which is kind of like, I feel like a parallel to this in our different views of it, which is interesting. The reason I dislike this portrayal is because of something we'll talk about later of like what statistics have shown, which is essentially that when we see Muslims in media, they are violent or they're associated with violence. And I think that gets wrapped up in our like post 9-11 view of Muslim as like a violent religion. And I don't think that that's true. And I think that this story playing into that can confirm in people's minds that that is what people who are Muslim experience. And unless you really, again, it's like similar to having friends who are different than you. Like, unless you really have a friend who is Muslim, like you might not realize that like, Oh, there's a completely different relationship that people have to it. Like it doesn't look that way for everybody. It's just the same. I mean, Yeah, I just think in particular, the Muslim religion has been associated in American minds with violence, with extremism and with, you know, all these negative things that I don't know if it's helpful to keep talking about that portrayal or to keep seeing it. It's like we also need to saturate it with other stories where that's not central. I think Anvar's story does do that, but maybe not enough. It's almost like it just, it could have been two separate books or two separate sections. And maybe I would feel differently. I think the 40% statistic is extremely interesting. And like, we'll talk about later, like representation is so important and not just 
representation in media, but representation of Pakistani girls snowboarding and of people doing things that are normal. There are so many ways to be a Pakistani person, to be a Muslim, to be someone who was born in Iraq. It is not this one story. And I do think in today's media and today's like political environment, that is the story we are being told again and again. So I totally see the point of like how that could be damaging. So yeah, this is okay. This is like trigger warning for sexual assault discussion coming. So fast forward for a couple minutes if you don't want to hear that. One of the things, it reminds me a lot of the statistics around who, how rape happens, which is like in media, we're presented with the idea that a rapist is someone you don't know who attacks you in the dark in an alleyway and has their way with you and then leaves and you never see them again. When in reality, that is not what usually happens you're usually raped by someone you know and it's usually in like a very ambiguous situation but because in our minds we see it the way movies have presented it to us women don't believe when they've actually been raped they question themselves and then on juries people don't believe women because well you were drinking and that doesn't fit and he liked you and you were leading him on and so like it doesn't fit with our idea of what rape actually is like or the way that women actually experience something like this so then it like becomes this like huge burden and that's what I feel like it's like when we see the same thing over and over again it becomes reality and then we don't believe other people when they say like that's not my experience my experience of Islam is not violent yeah I think that's a really good point also like wow the influence of media and how we perceive things is kind of crazy so I think that's a really good yeah good point Speaking again to like the trans experience, have you seen the um, documentary Disclosure? Mm -mm. If you haven't seen this documentary, I highly recommend it. It's called Disclosure on Netflix. And it talks a little bit about like how we, how trans people have been portrayed in media and how that's like filled this stereotype that trans women are not actual women and they're actually predators. Like part of it is because of the way we've been fed this idea through media. So I think it's, it it becomes a very pervasive self-fulfilling prophecy I'm being very harsh and I don't mean to be. I did enjoy this book. I think it was like touching and also painful. And I hope, you know, I do recognize that what you're saying, like the story of Safwa may have happened to someone that Saeed knows. It might be valid that he's trying to tell this story. I just want people to think about it in the context of millions and millions of people who have a good relationship with this religion. Okay, so one part of this um, book that I found to be like a little bit unbelievable, um, but also just like wild, was Zuha, who was Anvar's you know first love and girlfriend in college. He messed up while he was trying to find himself, which you know, and also being a jerk, we've all probably done. And then she ends up like engaged to his brother, and then leaves his brother for Anvar. Like, how is this family putting this back together? And also. Zuha, what are you? What did you think about this? Like, what is she doing? Yeah, it was weird that she like didn't talk to Anvar ahead of time. Um, okay, hold on. Sorry. Also, this is it reminded me a lot of a place for us, which I would recommend over this book. A lot of the like kind of like trying to communicate with each other, not being able to, reading a lot into like what was happening. Oh yeah. Um, I would definitely recommend so, a place for us. That was like one of my favorite <laughs> books last year. So good. So um fun. so yeah, I agree. It seemed like a little far-fetched, although I did really like their love story and I thought 
you know, I, I like that the book did not end with Anvar and Safwa being together. It oh, ended same. with him like redeeming himself for Zuha and finally realizing that like he needed to take some agency and also needed to like chill out about how harsh and critical he was and see her view of this religion and also her desire to connect with this community um, as valid and important and an important part of who she was. And that's all she wanted him to realize for so long. Um, so I liked that part. I was very worried for like the first half of this book that it was going to be like an Anvar rescuing Safwa and like, you know, she got out of all of these, this patriarchal society, these abusive relationships just to be rescued by another man. And I was just like so proud of her that he was like, let me, I mean, he messed it up, which is also was very realistic how that whole plan unraveled and how he like messed it up without knowing like something like that is rarely going to go off without a hitch, without hurting people. And I thought there was a very like realistic and a good showing of humanity and how that all kind of fell apart, but she was still okay. And she's on her own, actually free from all of these communities that have hurt her and scarred her, including like, you know, being in that she couldn't have been a part of Anwar's life. Like it wasn't realistic and if it would have ended like that. It would have been so frustrating. Um, I do, you know, hate that we don't know where she, if she ended up. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. I love that Zuha ends up being the way that she escapes. Oh like, yes. Come together and save each other. I'm like, yes, girls. Yes. <laughs> I read a quote from Saeed about how he views this book as a book about belonging, but not in terms of belonging to geographic place, um, but rather belonging to our kind of social identities and how our personal identity is wrapped up in these like identities of others or the identities that we take on. And I wouldn't say that I got that from the book, but I do think it's a really great question and way to think about it is like we're looking at these two different immigrant stories and how our two main characters are creating their identity by essentially like connecting to different parts of themselves connecting to different parts of the world connecting to their family in some ways and not connecting to their family in other ways and how like identity is a process of like picking stuff up and putting stuff down that we get from our social circles it's also interesting to look at it from the point of view of Saeed as a young adult novelist normally. And so I think sometimes these deeper themes are just like a little bit under the surface. Um, and this is the first adult nonfiction book that he's written. So yeah, an important point. Um, I think this book was stirred a lot of good conversation um, and good discussion, which I always think is interesting, sometimes better than the book itself. Um, I did want to say that I was like I did think Said was really funny throughout this book like he's a funny writer and it made me laugh that he's like an attorney who casually writes books on the side and is also funny so you know props to him for really being multi-talented here yes I will definitely read his other book that just came yeah out I do want to well. read that more is it more than just a pretty face yeah something like yeah that. okay we'll link it in the show notes <laughs> After the break, my best friend, Elise, aside from my best friend, Katie, yeah, like I'm not loving that. Okay. Friend, my boyfriend, <laughs> I other than my best friend, James. OK, Maybe we you all should have just many stop best saying friends. best friend. <laughs> she would kill me if I didn't call her that. Oh, Jesus. Um, okay. Will join us to talk about um, her experience growing up as a Muslim, as Pakistani um, in California and her thoughts on kind of the themes of this book. So we can't wait to talk to her. Yay. See you on the other side. Cute.
name's Elise, um, born and raised in Los Angeles, been living in New York the last five years, which got ruined by the pandemic, so I've been living a little nomadically, currently in Trancones in Mexico, and I am a yoga teacher, I work in the creative world at Airbnb right now, and, um, and yeah, and I'm friends with these two lovely ladies, Katie and Erica. Wow, I have not heard you Good. call yourself a yoga teacher in so long. I, I know. I'm like, why did that just come out of my mouth? I have no <laughs> idea. I'm nervous. So. Fuck. I forgot to say that I'm Muslim. That's the whole fucking point of this. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is that you're my best friend and I miss you. And this is an excuse to talk to you for an hour. That's true. I just read this book by Kathy Park Hong. It's a nonfiction book of essays, and she's Korean-American. In the book, she talks about how the phrase Asian-American is essentially, like, was just created, like, 30 years ago. And essentially, it doesn't fit well because it covers so many different people and cultures and cultures and histories, which, like, countries that didn't get along within themselves. Related to this, she talks about how the term brown people emerged in response to 9-11 as a way for South Asians and Muslims to establish solidarity with each other and even with Latinx people. All these terms are really inexact in a lot of ways. Do you relate to these terms at all? Do you think they're useful? When and how are they useful, if they are? Yeah, um, I recently have talked about these terms uh, in previous conversations and I'm a little bit of a hypocrite about these terms because sometimes I use them and I'm like, oh yeah, brown. Brown is Indian, Pakistani, Bengali. That's brown. And then other times I'm like, oh no, brown is also like the Latinx community. Um, and it kind of depends on the context of the conversation. Um, I also grew up saying that like Pakistan was like Middle Eastern and now I'm like, no, Pakistan is South Asian. Like why and how does it matter? And like, what does that even mean at the end of the day? Um, but I agree. I think that there aren't defined terms and they've all just sprouted and people have created their own definitions for them. And it feels like isolating in a way um, because you don't really know what to call yourself and you can't really say, give yourself a label with, with like enough confidence around it. Like why is Pakistan not part of the Middle East if it's predominantly Muslim and neighboring all these Muslim countries? And then on the other end, like neighboring India, which is not predominantly Muslim, like like how does that all make sense and and wrap up and define itself? Um, Do you relate to the term Asian American at all? Because that feels like such a big umbrella. I guess when I'm with my like East Asian friends, I do find like a sense of relatability, like especially if they come from like immigrant families, like there's a huge sense of relatability there. Um, Generally though, like getting that label does feel a little like too much of an umbrella and a little empty. I would love it if you would also talk about the term desi and what that refers to. Kathy also mentions that in her book with her friends, she calls her friends who are Pakistani her desi friends when she was talking specifically about the term brown people. But that's not a term I had ever heard very often, like before before you um, and in relation to like drinking chai tea. And describing certain people. Yeah, yeah. They see, um, I wish more people knew what they see meant. And in my mind, and I might be wrong because no one's formally defined this, but they see to me means Pakistani, Indian, and Bengali. Um, and I restrict it to those three different 
ethnicity groups because there's a lot of relatability strung along those three regions or those three countries. Um, and, and it's like, we listen to the same music, we relatively eat, eat the same kind of food, um, wear the same types of clothes to weddings, etc. Um, granted, like what, what's the word to like meld Pakistan and Afghanistan, because there's a lot of commonalities between those two countries too. And there isn't like a specific term to define that. Um, I've never heard of an Afghan person calling themselves a Desi. I highly, highly doubt that would ever happen. Um, but, but that's how I define it in my mind. But like, no one's ever told me what that word actually means. <laughs> so, and to me too, like Desi means brown, like, but brown in that context, brown can also mean a hundred other things too. It's, it's ironic because there's a sense of comfort of being able to call myself a Desi woman. Granted, there's also like so much racism between Pakistanis and Indians. So on one hand, it's, yes, these are our people. And in other conversations, it's, oh, no, you can't marry an Indian person. That's not going to fly with our family. Uh, so the irony behind all of it is quite absurd. With all these labels, it reminds me of what Tori Peters said, which has really stuck with me, which is how she describes herself using particular terms. She said, it's like a joke, but it's a joke I really mean. I feel like that with all social identities, like we get that it's just a label, but also it's a label that can be really important. And also it's a label that can be really bad and not be very descriptive, but it's still something that can mean a lot. You know, even if the labels change every day, they change every day and I think they change every day and I think a part of it is it's it's how do you label a whole group of people right like there's nuances to everyone's identity and we're just trying to find the right terms that like baseline cover a majority of people but we all of us as individuals are going to have our own specific labels and I think that's where the conflict arises with all this. I was say a lot of what we talk about at work which is mostly in labels or in groups of gender or sexual identities is in finding out what people want to be identified as and how they want you to identify them or how they want you to refer to them or what they're comfortable with and then using that. So you can say you know, trans woman or a person of trans experience or transgender woman or whatever it is, but asking someone how they identify and then honoring that is like the easiest way I think to do it rather than, because no term is going to be what fits for everybody. You can't pick one term or one grouping and expect it to explain all of those nuances. So I think it's hard, but asking, I guess, is the first step of it. or figuring out how people identify. I could talk about labels forever. They're so fascinating to me. We just read Crying in H Mart, which is about the daughter of a Korean immigrant who grew up in Oregon. And she's talking to her mom about how the kids at school were making fun of her because she's Korean. And her mom looks at her and she's like, you're not Korean, you're American. Like, what do you mean? You were born in the US. It's also funny, like we just trace these lineages back to you know, some source, but they are American if they're born in America. But of course, it's like a cultural connection that other people put on her. At the same time, like with James, when he talks about being African American, he's like, I'm not African. Like, I don't even know where in Africa my, my family would be from. But other people recognize me as African American. He refers to himself as black, but it's, it's a label because it defines how other people treat him. 
but he has no connection like inherently to Africa. He doesn't have family there that he knows of. So even in that way, the label is very flat. One last thing might be podcast worthy, but in response to James's situation, that's mostly because people are afraid of saying black, right? But people aren't afraid of saying white. And then I asked myself, are people afraid of saying brown? I don't know. I only feel comfortable using it because I've heard you use it before, but I feel the same way that you do. I'm not quite sure who it's referencing because you could think of an indigenous people. You could think of Latinx people. You could think of Cubans. You could think of Puerto Ricans. These are all very different cultures and groups and experiences. So it also doesn't really make a ton of sense. These lines around different races and ethnicities, it just inherently, it just makes no sense. But yet they're so important at the same time. Yeah. And why are we referring to a group of people literally as a color? Because then what color do we label East Asians as? And I like, we, we don't have a specific color. In fact, I think the color that people do use is very inappropriate when they do use it. Riz Ahmed has talked about these stereotypical presentations in media of Muslims where he says that violence is wrapped up in their portrayal. Researchers have quantified this, showing that nearly 40% of Muslim characters are shown as perpetrators of violence and more than half are targeted by violence. So similarly, people have critiqued this book for a very flat portrayal of the Muslim experience. Um, what Muslim characters and stories do you want told and presented in media or would you like to see? I love this question because it constantly comes up in my life. I remember going snowboarding like back when I was in middle school and my parents being like, wow, like a Pakistani girl snowboarding? I, I've never seen that before. And I've held on to that forever because I'm like, yeah, we never see shit about Pakistani people. Like, I also think about how we never see South Asians or East Asians making love on camera. And therefore, I question, hey, like, why don't I gravitate more towards fantasizing about brown men um, in my love life? Uh, and it's, it's constant. It's like, oh, like why, why are we not talking about, uh, brown people taking sabbaticals for three years and just traveling or having unique careers? It's all because we don't see it on, in media or on the screen. In my opinion, I think a lot of what we see, like the exciting things that we see on screen are like from white and black characters. And very rarely do we see other ethnicities represented on screen or in media and and it is very frustrating when you mostly see muslim people uh you know playing the character of a terrorist or a taxi cab driver or just annoying aziz ansari living his life in new york um so it's it's it is a struggle always and it is frustrating and i think honestly it would make my life a lot easier with my family if they were to see different types of different ethnicities live in all types of life on on the screen in media etc um i'm rambling sorry guys uh no i mean just more representation in general is like what do i want to see like all of the stories every different way that you can be all the different ways that you can be a person or all the different ways that you can be a muslim there is not one way instead of being told the same story what we want to see is all of them like all of the options related to that i didn't know that this was a term but there's a term 
There's a new term that I learned called own voices, which is a term describing a book written by a marginalized community about characters in that marginalized community. Own voices also tend to be some of our favorite books, mine and Katie's books. What makes a book different when it's written by someone who's actually experienced that? And and why is it important to hear these voices in particular? I think it's important because... I mean, everyone's story is important, and I think it just gives you a sense of relatability once you can identify with something in someone's story. Uh, I recently have thought about, like, oh, what if I started a podcast or, like, a medium blog about, like, sexual identity and relationships, like, as a Pakistani Muslim person, and I thought to myself, like, wait, has anyone done that? I I don't want to be the pioneer to do that. Like, that's scary, because some relative might kill me if they end up finding it. <laughs> and, but but I wonder, like, who's who's already been out there doing that type of stuff before? Because if I find that, I'll, be, I'll feel a lot more comfortable knowing that there's other people talking about the same types or having the same dialogue that I'm trying to have out on the internet. But maybe if there's not, that's even more of a reason to start that dialogue because what you're searching for is probably what other people are also searching for. Fully agree. I just need a, a dose of courage to, to be able to do that. So. That was it. That was your sign. It's time to get started. <laughs> Will you guys teach but I me think how, to, how, to, how to create a podcast? Doing it. Yeah, we're, <laughs> you're literally podcasting. You are literally podcasting. It's great. I think it's interesting because, which we've talked about this before, a lot of media and, and books and history books and all kinds of things that are written are written by white people about other people or by, you know, white straight people about other people. Um, so I think it's important to let people tell their own stories, not tell it for them, but because you can never do it as, you know, totally. And it's more authentic that way. This is like the same case that we like recently in the last couple of years in New York, especially Erica, where we're like, Oh, who owns that Indian masala dosa restaurant on the corner of Lafayette and whatever. Is it a white family or is it an Indian family? And we should also question what we're reading and what we're consuming. Is it a white person writing about Pakistani people or is it a Pakistani person or a Muslim person? A central theme of this book is what makes someone a good versus a bad Muslim? Is this the distinction that you think exists? Is it something that's related to being a good person in general? And is it something that comes and goes or changes as we go through life? Uh, This definitely exists in my world at least um more in my childhood than than now because I kind of don't care as much now but uh yeah I mean it's almost like the like Santa like naughty and nice list or whatever but this exists all year long um and there's there's things that make you a good Muslim and things that make you a bad Muslim uh, fasting every day during the month of Ramadan makes you a good Muslim. Being covered in a modest way makes you a good Muslim. Um, and then, you know, drinking makes you a bad Muslim. Um, having sex before marriage makes you a bad Muslim. Doing drugs makes you a bad Muslim, which I guess like a lot of those things are for like any, any religion. But, uh, I, I grew up with that not necessarily like from my family but just like generally from the community of like you shouldn't be wearing this because muslims should not be dressing in that type of way uh and and yeah i think like the way i grew up with islam was like very like rooted in fear which is why i don't buy into religion um it's kind of on the back burner for me to solve and figure out for myself uh 
what do I think makes a good person or a bad person for me I just I've I've come down to a point in my life where I'm like as long as you're kind and you're spreading love you're a good person if you have a good heart you're a good person do you need to believe in god do you need to pray five times a day do you need to like go on hudge or whatever like requirements are religion to be a good person no like do what you can do to just like spread positivity in this world that makes you a good person i don't care if you believe in god or jesus or like goats or whatever the fuck like just do what you need to do to be kind um and that's what's important to me I was just going to say, do you think, I think something that Anwar struggles with throughout this book is like making, and I think you kind of said this, but like he makes decisions that he questions or when you're someone who makes a bad decision is being a good person kind of, it's not something that comes and goes, but something that, I don't know how I'm trying to say this, like is kind of above being, making a bad or good decision, but being a good or bad person. I think your decisions are who you are because Anybody could have good intentions and think they're a good person, but if you don't do good things, to me, you're not a good person, which is why I find Anvar as a main character so frustrating because he's not a good person. He's not being helpful. He's just sitting at home and thinking philosophically about all these issues, or even more frustratingly, he's just being helpless. Like, well, religion isn't the answer, so whatever. Let me just do nothing. But being a good person or not is about like his actions. Okay, but are we saying he's not a good person because he's not? This is, I think, what I'm saying. So because in this current phase of his life, he's still kind of like coming to terms with what growing up being the bad kid really means for him and if he's even able to be helpful and like is he he's struggling through that. So because right now he's not, this is what I'm saying. So right now he's not doing these good acts. He's not doing everything possible. So does he never get to be a good person? Does he not have that in him because he's making currently not decisions that are good? Because you just said, like, oh, he's not a good person. So that's it for him? Or, like, is that something that can change? You can always change. I, you can always change. Every day you can decide to be a better person than you were yesterday. I think it's really important that you do that. I think what's frustrating about Anvar is you can have the conversation that we're having, like Elise is saying, it's important to be kind, and that doesn't mean that you have to do X thing or not Y thing, whatever's prescribed to you, but I do think it does mean you have to act. You can't just think about what being a good person is. You have to do kindness. You have to do love. You have to do good things. But I'm sort of existential about it. Like, no one's keeping score, so I don't think there's ever, like, a deciding score that you're, you know, a good person or not. I think the reality, too, is that none of us are perfect. There are, are going to be days where I am being a quote-unquote bad person or a quote-unquote good person. I think uh, overarching, like, well, I think Islam and other religions are trying to just give you a, a guide to be a quote-unquote good person. There, there are beautiful things about Islam that teach you to be a good person. Ramadan is one of the most beautiful months ever. When I watch my mom fast, it's so pure and amazing to witness and see it. Uh, and if that's how she's going to find herself to be a quote-unquote good person, great. I'm going to find other ways to become a good person. And I think we all are just on a journey and a path to figure out what how how does that happen and how are we going to navigate it? All right. A lot of dominant religions like Muslim and Christianity have a conservative bend to them or at least seen as restrictive or out of touch with modern social life. Um, do you feel the tension between religion and being modern is real or fair? And how can we as young people remain attached to faith-based communities? I 
um, so I don't know, I don't know everything about Islam, so I can't be the perfect spokesperson for it. But what I've questioned about it throughout my life is, are, are factors of Islam archaic? Because this book, the Quran, was written so long ago, and all these stories about Prophet Muhammad fasting and walking across the desert, etc., to me seem archaic. Like, sure, Prophet Muhammad fasted for 30 days once upon a time like can we do that in the modern world where we're running around taking care of our children handling jobs juggling homes people work careers life etc uh i i my excuse to never fast was always that that like it doesn't work today anymore also it doesn't work in the united states where i'm still expected to go to school or go to my job from nine to five whereas in muslim countries they shut down when when it's Ramadan because they can, right? Like they go to work at different hours and countries just like sleep during the middle of the day to allow people to fast. Um, but the whole world can't can't do that. And therefore I do think because we're in a modern era, it limits how much we can um, participate in these different like facets of, uh, of uh, our, our religions and Islam. Um, do you think it's important for young people to stay attached to faith-based communities or to community in general? Or is it something that is just going to go to the wayside as we continue to get more progressive? I think community is important. I have not found a community in religion. I have found it in my yoga world, though, or um, just within different circles that I, that I roll with. I think whatever community, I, I don't think we should live in isolation. So whatever com- types of communities people need to feel fulfilled, go for it. If that's a religious-based community, amazing, do it. If that's like something uh, embedded within sports, cool. Like that's your thing, go do it. Uh, and whatever, however which way it fulfills you, and it can change over time. You can be part of 10 communities. You can be part of one and then leave it after a couple of years. Um, so I think that's really important and, you know, if, if, if religion's the way, then, then religion's the way. And if it's Islam, great. I love that. That was a really good answer. That's my answer. That's sort of how I think about my family being very, very Christian is if it helps you, like if it helps you, I'm happy for you. If it helps you be a mean judgmental person to other people, I'm not happy for you. That's sort of where I land on it. I do think people our age are less and less invested in community. Like friends can be very transactional. People end friendships, people end relationships. We're very transient. I do think you're right. It's important to find a community that does help you feel connected and also will not just let you run around and do whatever you want. But we'll be like, hmm, like, why do we feel that way? Why did we act that way? Like, just a little bit of accountability can be good without the guilt and the judgment. I think that's where people struggle, too, is, like, finding somewhere where they can be held accountable to being a good person. Because you want you want your friends to be like, hey, that was not cool. That hurt someone. You shouldn't have done whatever it is. Like, you want people to hold you accountable to being a good person. But you also want to be able to be your own person. And I think a lot of people in kind of our generation compared to, you know, past generations are much more vocal about who they are and much more confident in being like, and I have every right to be this person and 
a lot of times, like, yeah, religions in the traditional way have not been accepting of the kinds of people that there are. And so people hid that part of themselves in order to find community. And I think it's important now to realize you can find community and be yourself um, and still kind of get those good parts of what you can find in a, in a religious community as well. Like that accountability and that support when you need it, all of that is, can be really good wherever you can find it. Elise, are you reading anything in Mexico? Oh, yes, I am reading something. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I prepared my answer for this, which is hilarious. Um, I, Erica, would be very proud. I brought a book with me to Mexico. It's called Mistranslations, which I actually um, read half of about two years ago. Our friend Len gifted it to me. Um, but I put it down and picked it back up and realized, wow, I've forgotten this book already. So I started again from page one. Um, and Mistranslations is by Sopan Deb, who is a um, Indian journalist for the New York Times. Um, and the story is about his immigrant parents and how he was raised um, as an Indian in um, in the United States. And there are certain things that I relate to. There's other things I don't relate to. But for the most part, um, it's it's great because it's because we're both brown, and so I get it. <laughs> and so it's been enjoying to read um, so far on the beach in Mexico. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Great talking to you. Have a great time See in Mexico. Soon. I'm so jealous you're both going. <laughs> Just book a ticket and join us. Fuck it. Perfect. <laughs> Talk, 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 talk. <laughs> we're in a podcasting marathon today. Oh my God. We're podcasting so much. We've talked, talked multiple times. I don't have to, I don't have anything else to talk, talk about. Like, I'm out. I do. I am joining Elise in Trincones in Mexico. I leave next Saturday and in preparation yesterday, I went and took a surf lesson because I tried to surf what? on my own and like I've, I Took, I was like, did a surfing weekend when I was in Australia and have taken like sporadic surf lessons, but I like can never remember them all. And I try to go surfing by myself outside of Myrtle Beach. And first of all, the waves were horrible, but yeah. I also had a hard board and I was just like failing so miserably. And I took a surf lesson yesterday. Where? To, you live in New York City. I didn't know this like prior to moving to New York, but like. The Rockaway Beach is like a legit beach and it's about an hour away. Jacob Reese Beach is like a legit beach and it's 40 minutes away from me. Like all along like the Atlantic coast, like the Hamptons, Montauk, like Rockaway Beach, it's all like legit beach. So there's like a huge like surfing community in Brooklyn, especially with all these like ex-California people. Um, but I would have never known that like prior to moving here. And the beaches are, like, pretty nice, depending on which one you go to. Wow. What a fun weekend. Also, I've been teaching every single day for the past two weeks, and I'm deceased. I went to bed at, like, 9.15 on Friday night. I was so tired. Yeah. You have been doing a lot, doing really the most with this class. So proud of you that you're almost done. Um, and really excited for your relaxing vacation after. Yay. Um, I'm also leaving for vacation on Thursday, which I'm excited about, and I'm going to go to Bookloft today and get some vacation books, so 
yeah, I don't know what I'm going to get yet, but I'm just going to see what, I mean, I got to finish the three I'm reading at some point, but you know, that's okay. Do you like reading like light books or dark books on vacation? I like to read a mix per usual. Like last year I read, I think three books in the week, which is wild, but I read, um, three women, which I felt like was a little bit darker. I also read all adults here, which was like a good balance to that. So I feel like reading, I like to, you know, do the little mix thing. Um, but I do read a lot. It's like my favorite part of going to the lake because there's like literally nothing else to do, but like swim and read and nap and cook dinner with my family, which is like all my favorite things in one. Um, and yeah, yesterday we spent the day in, um, Athens visiting, well, not Athens, but like Southern Ohio visiting Jason's family. Um, and it was really good We could see everybody. We brought the dog, which I was like a little bit nervous about cause he can be wild. And he was like someone else's dog. He was like amazing. It was, it was so weird. He just like followed Jason's grandma around. He jumped on no one. He laid down the whole day. He was like an angel puppy. I was like. Did someone Aww. drug him? It's unsure, but you know. I mean, he's, he's getting older, right? He is five, yeah. Yeah. They said it would happen. Okay, yeah. I got to go to Costco. Ugh. Okay, have fun. I'm my trying ears to think hurt of... from the level of um, earbud-ing. Oh, my God. If I think of any books that you should read, I'll text you. Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week.